My next guest on the Tea Time Sofa is Dwight Stephen Bonnecke, award-winning author of Live TV from the Moon, Live TV from Orbit, and editor of Skylab 1 and 2. Yes, in case you haven't guessed it, he has been absolutely fascinated by space travel and investigating our universe for a long time. And with a career based in TV production, Dwight, who's from New South Wales, says the last few years of directing the award-winning documentary, Searching for Skylab, that features never-before-seen footage of the incredible science and technology achieved by the space station and the NASA astronauts. He recalls the blood, sweat, tears and laughter that went into finally releasing the documentary this February. Let's find out more. So Dwight, welcome to Tea Time with me, Ali Mojak. How are you doing? Hi Ali, thanks for having me on the show. It's great to be here. So a fantastic week you've just had, haven't you, really? Because, you know, you um, have been able to distribute, not perhaps how you thought you were going to be able to distribute, the documentary on Skylab. A long time ago, we were sort of seeing how the industry uh, works with distribution, and both my wife and I, or my wife Alex, uh, is Alexandra is the producer, and we were like, oh, do we really want to go with a standard distribution deal where it never favours the filmmaker? And through basically just one thing leading to another, we ended up doing it ourselves, and uh, with the help of a PR firm. Um, we have done a lot more than we ever would had we gone by the way of distribution. Yeah, no, I, I completely see what you mean. But I mean, also, it would be nice to sort of be able to show the, the documentary in a cinema right now, which is... Oh, is that would be... We have done it. We, we held our world premiere in uh, the Rocket Centre in Alabama, in Huntsville. Mm. And that was on the huge I, I would say it's it's um uh, for IMAX type viewings right and there's my little film up on this huge screen and I'm sitting there and just <laughs> of course as a director every single error in the film I can see right and I'm like oh look it's huge fantastic yay that's what I want but it was it was an awesome experience and the coolest thing was uh, this is a little side story we we, we were about to start the film and David Hitt, who's a good friend of mine, who's written a book on Skylab called Homesteading Space, mm. he just gets up to the podium and he goes, oh, and by the way, the ISS will be flying over right now. Right, so we're sitting there ready to have our premiere and then the ISS flies right over the Huntsville Rocket Centre. And we're like, okay, that's a pretty good sign. Um, we also showed it in the cinema in uh, uh, um, Esperance, which is where Skylab crashed in 1979. And we were there for the 40th anniversary. And that was pretty cool too, because you know I, I walk around here and I say to people, I've done a film about Skylab. What's Skylab? In Esperance, you go, I've done a film about Skylab, and everybody and their dog will go. I remember when I was a boy, and that thing hit my roof, and you know, and everybody talks about Skylab. I'm like, I feel very much at home in this place. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely, you did. So that was uh, Western Australia, wasn't it? I mean, that right. you know, and. I mean, obviously, there, there's a huge connection there because that's how the story happened, even with, was it Honeysuckle Creek? 
Honeysuckle Creek, and then in Western Australia, they've got the Carnarvon tracking station. Uh, actually, uh, Carnarvon were the very first people to hear that there was a problem after Skylab launched, where the meteoroid shield was ripped off. And they were analysing the data and going, oh, something's wrong here. It then, in its path, flew over Honeysuckle. And that's when Honeysuckle were all already going, uh, there's something wrong here. And the two pooled their resources, sent it off to Houston. And that's where the alarm bells went off in Houston that there was something wrong with the space station. And when you look at the, uh, the anomaly report after launch, you find out that the space station, through a combination of errors and mishaps, was within seconds of exploding. And had that happened, that would have been uh, dire for NASA because at that point, they were facing budget cuts. And had that space station not launched, and the whole idea of selling Skylab was reusing Apollo hardware for other things than landing on the moon. And so Skylab was the, 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 the flagship of this. And if that hadn't worked, that would have been catastrophic for NASA. Well, it would have been, and uh, we probably wouldn't have had an International Space Station now, would we? So, yeah. Well, the International Space Station is a direct result of planning that went into Space Station Freedom from, I think it was the, the late 90s, early 2000s, thereabouts, correct me if I'm wrong. And I know for a fact that Jerry Carr and Bill Pogue, who were on the final mission, they were heavily involved in, in the planning of that. So... There is a link between the ISS and Skylab. And of course, the data, this is, this is the other thing. Um, we were at STEC in, in the Netherlands about three years ago, and we asked uh, the people there, you know, do you use data from, from Skylab to plan ISS meetings? And he said, yeah, we do. Problem is, there is so much data that Skylab collected, we don't have enough scientists to be able to analyze it. And that's now 45 years since Skylab flew. That's amazing, isn't it, really, to think that that is still the situation. I mean, yeah. and I don't think Skylab, I mean, obviously to, to people that are completely into the situation and have, you know, researched it and studied it, I don't think that, you know, as a, a globe, globally, we don't really know enough about it, do we? Skylab, no. Um, the, the main problem it's not really a problem it's it's uh, as david hitt says in the movie you know skylab is a victim of its own success it happened at a time in the shadow of apollo it happened uh, months after apollo 17. Mm -hmm. it was despite the problems a resounding success all the experiments they wanted to do were performed and uh it literally changed the way we live on this planet to quote another person glenn nagel from tidbin villa uh, there are so many things, TV dinners, for example, that, that uh, you know, we stick in the microwave five minutes later, you've got a ready meal. That is a direct result of food planning from Skylab. Smoke detectors that you have in your house, they are a direct result from, from Skylab. So uh, there's a lot of things. When you start looking into it, you, you go down the rabbit hole. There is so much information. And this is what attracted me to the whole Skylab. Uh, story that it's not just this space station that went up had problems and crashed in Australia they did so much fundamental science for example they rewrote the, the, his, the, the textbook on solar uh, observations everything they learned in Skylab was more than in the entire human history what we knew about the sun so up until the point Skylab flew we had a certain amount of knowledge about the sun afterwards it had I think it was quadrupled the amount of information they gathered on how the sun works or how they understood the sun to work. Um, 
completely changed people's perceptions, scientists especially. There was one scientist uh, with the Earth observations where they were photographing uh, with infrared and, and various uh, wavelengths the surface of the Earth. He said one photograph, one single photograph, could preoccupy myself for one year. Wow, that is amazing, isn't it? That, that's another amazing fact, really. So let's just talk about you for a little while, because, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you have been fascinated by all of this, even before you did a documentary, haven't you? And you've written several books. Correct. Now, I grew up in the Lost in Space era. Uh, reruns, of course. I'm not that old just yet. Uh, so, And Star Trek. Uh, so for me, and Land of the Giants and all that sort of thing. So for me, science fiction was just a part of my life. You know, I saw Star Wars in the cinema when it first came out, the, uh, the original and the best. Um, so I was already predispositioned for this. And up until I would say about 20 years ago, I still was very much into science fiction. And then I discovered the science. And that's where I was like, whoa, this is way cooler than, uh, um, you know, any, any anyone's been letting on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I've, I've got a photograph hanging here and uh, you know, talking about Skylab. And Jack Lausma uh, sent me a nice photo and he said it's one of uh, NASA's best kept secrets. And I thought, you are not wrong, you know. It's out there if you know where to look for it. And that's the problem. If you don't know where to look for it, forget it. You've got no chance of finding this information in any great hurry. Uh, and that's what we've tried to do in the film, to pack as much of this project into 98 minutes that you can. And it, it isn't easy. And no. in an ideal world, I would love the film to be five hours long because even then I would be going, oh, but I could have put something else in there. So... I mean, that that's the world of TV, you know. I mean, I've got a TV background as well, so it it really is, you know, the the world of TV where you just have to sort of condense the facts and the information and make it, you know, consequential and you know make it almost succinct, really, so that people can sort of obtain enough information out of it. Um, yeah, and I understand it's a very tricky job, you know, so to be in the, the cutting room, as, a, as you say, we so call it, but it's not. I mean, it's fancy editing suites these days. Uh, I've, got, I've got a really good guide. Uh, my little niece, she would have been about five years old at the time. We, there was a bushranger in, in uh, Australia who was like a, in that time, modern day Robin Hood would rob from the rich and a very complex story about his background. And, you know, and he was eventually uh, uh, shot by the police. Now, my little niece succinctly put that entire story that lasted years into one sentence. He took money from the rich to give to the poor. The rich didn't like it, so they shot him. <laughs> and that's the basis of making a movie. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> love it, brilliant. No, that that is so funny, isn't it? How children can sometimes just so succinctly put stuff into, you know, perspective for us, which is great. How long did it actually take you to put this documentary together? Well, the documentary has uh, had a sort of convoluted beginning. It started when I was writing the book, Live TV from the Moon. And I was researching how the camera systems were developed for Apollo. And I got in touch with Stan LaBar, who was the manager of the Westinghouse Lunar Television Program. 
And I was talking to him on the telephone two, three times a week for hours on end. You know, it would be two o'clock in the morning, my time in Maryland, it was, uh, you know, eight in the evening and we would go well into the evening. And every single phone call, he would start because I would be asking him about Apollo and he's going, but, 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 but you don't understand. See, Apollo was good, but Skylab, that's where we started really doing fantastic television. I'm thinking, uh, that thing that crashed in my, uh, in, in my backyard pretty much. He's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was lucky enough then to get my hands on, as you can see in the background here, uh, some archival film from the television downlinks. And I started watching this material after what Stan was saying to me. And I thought, oh, yeah, he's not wrong. The television they were doing there, had they been able to do that on Apollo, that would have been in intense. They would have had multi-cameras on the lunar surface. And what they were doing in Skylab, they had their own little TV studio pretty much. They could switch between videotape, cameras in the uh, upper section, lower section, wherever they wanted. And I was like, oh, this is fascinating. This is worth a book in itself. So I did a second book called Live TV from Orbit. And that is how I got in touch with the Skylab astronauts and people involved in the Skylab uh, project. And then by having the film material, I was then, uh, it was suggested to me by somebody uh, on a Facebook site, Space Hipsters, why don't you do a film? You've got so much stuff. And I'm like, yeah, why don't I? Not understanding at all what I was getting myself into, talking about going down the rabbit hole. And that was about 2014 when we started doing the background planning of how to do this. And then uh, I got in touch with another fellow, Stephen Slater, who was the archive producer on the phenomenally successful Apollo 11 film that came out in 2019. And he had newly scanned film footage, which is what we use in our film. And the 16 millimeter stuff looks like it was shot yesterday. And I remember when I got the, uh, the screener uh, hard disk from him and I looked at the stuff and I went, yeah, I'm pretty sure we can do this. Yeah, we've got the, uh, the background knowledge that's in my head. Uh, we've got contacts, we can do this. So we set about interviewing people and we interviewed the guys in Honeysuckle Creek uh, telling us their stories. And again, you know, editing down these, these guys were telling us every single story that they could remember. And I had to put these great stories into that much. And it just does just stop you there about Honeysuckle Creek because they, when they knew that they were sort of heading that way, the, they basically spoke to the guy about his beer, didn't they? And they said something about, you know, can you, can you keep the beer cool? Oh, that's right. That's right. That was John Saxon. That that story. Oh, that's a little anecdote I can tell you as well. Um, I, I found out about that about oh, now, now 16 years ago. Uh, and Charlie Duke was coming out to uh, Autographica, which was held in Coventry in the UK. And I, I researched up and I, I found out that Charlie Duke never got his promised beer. So I talked to the guys in Honeysuckle, who I, because of the book I was uh, dealing with, and then my, uh, my dad contacted uh, the brewery in Western Australia and got them to ship out a box of uh, complimentary beer for Charlie Duke for the show. So we had this whole ceremony where finally, on behalf of Honeysuckle Creek, Charlie Duke got his swan lager. <laughs> and it was like, oh, wow, here's me elbowing my way into history. <laughs> that and, is brilliant. Uh, it, was, oh, it was really cool. And that, that's what started that, that Autographica show was where my interest went from, oh, that's nice to, wow, this is cool. Um, that was 2004. And if had you told me back in 2004, I would have done a movie about Skylab. I'd look at you and go, 
me? <laughs> so, who knows? Who knows what the future brings if you put your mind to something? Absolutely, definitely. And obviously, you know, your your complete interest in it is, you know, your enthusiasm for it. You know, and it has very much sort of shaped the future of the International Space Station. And you're right. I mean, how we actually see the, the planet and the universe and the sun and, um, yeah, yeah we, which is extraordinary, really, because, I mean, at the moment, there's um, Rover on Mars, isn't there? And, you know, there's, Perfect. you know, up until not, not, not that long ago, we all were led to believe that it was some red planet well actually it's not you know have you so. heard the, have you heard that audio recording they've just released of the surface of mars from that microphone yeah on the, uh we got we got goosebumps listening to that i thought hang on a second this is the first time we're hearing audio from the the, the surface of another planet in the solar mm-hmm. system this is pretty intense uh, and what a, what a fantastic time to live in to see all this stuff happening it is a fantastic time to, to see this all happening. And, you know, it's almost sort of, as I said, um, apt that, you know, you've finally been able to distribute the, this documentary, you know. So, I mean, it, it's, you know, a project that has been obviously worth doing, hasn't it? So it can open many more people's eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> see, see this beard here? When I started the film, it wasn't grey. <laughs> <laughs> so you you didn't quite sort of tell me how long, how many years it did take you to... to okay, from project start, that was 2014 when I was approaching, uh, for example, Ed Gibson. He was one of the first astronauts I was speaking to about the project. We started planning in earnest at the end of 2016. And we, we had the official premiere of February 8th, 2018. No, 2019, sorry. Well, I've, I've skipped a year thanks to COVID-19. I, I can't remember <laughs> where no. we are, actually. Don't worry, we all um, have. I did some changes to the film after the premiere. Uh, you know, I had to take a, a bit of pill and look at it with a very critical eye because I thought if I'm releasing this on Blu-ray, I want the viewers to have the best possible experience. So I went through and every cringe moment that I had in that film, whether it be a wrong stripe of something somewhere that I could get rid of or audio wasn't exactly 100%, I went and fixed. Uh, so in my mind, the final version of the film was completed in October of last year. Wow. So. That's the one that we've been submitting now to the film festival, as you can see behind me, the, the awards uh, since that one. And I remember sitting watching the uh, evaluation uh, disc that I had, had made to make sure everything was correct. I thought, this is the one that's going to make the waves. This is, this is the one. This is finally it. And I felt like Brian Wilson mixing down uh, Good Vibrations, where he, he said in an interview, you know, I, I knew then that was the version that was going to come out. And that's, that's exactly how I felt. So those awards over there, just talk me through those. Right, the first one we got was from the Eastern Europe Film Festival, which was a complete surprise. You know, I, there, there was an upload portal and you, you apply for film festivals and you have to put your film online so that they can access it and they view it. And in, in the COVID era, you don't have the cinemas anymore. Everyone does it online. So in, uh, in Romania, where we won this, this uh, award for, that was actually quite special as well because... Uh, Eastern Europe obviously were forced to support the Soviet space program and to win an award in a country that really didn't know anything about the American space program. That was, that was kind of cool. I thought, wow, a whole new audience has been opened up. 
um, the astronauts and their families are just stoked about that one. They just said, wow, this is really, really cool that we're finally, you know, having our legacy told to people that didn't know about it. Then we won the Sweden Film Awards. And uh, to quote Jack Lausmer, I used to like the Swedes, now I love them. <laughs> and Jack Lausmer <laughs> was the pilot on uh, SL3. Then we won, and this is the special one for me, the Salt House Creative uh, Film Awards in New South Wales, Australia. And I'm like, my home state. And we won Best Director for that one. So, of course, my ego just uh, exploded. And then the, we won uh, another one in Hollywood. And that one, uh, I must say, when you put Hollywood in front of an award name, <laughs> people start to take notice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was cool. That We had to do uh, interviews online with them as part of the film festival program. And uh, I could see that we had done so much uh, publicity for the film already that I just felt natural in front of the camera and it shows and we had the other directors going oh we, we really want to see your film and I'm going that's exactly what I want to bring across that it's something worthwhile seeing then the last award we won was Channel Islands Film Awards that was last week brilliant, so brilliant. it's going from like from from nothing to suddenly everything happening all at once I'm like okay I'm ready to ride this wave now I've, I've done the hard work I am allowed to enjoy it. <laughs> so, well, you are. Yeah, oh. you are. But definitely. Doing, doing a film on your own, it's hard work. That that much I will, I will say. Uh, it, not to say it wasn't fun. That there, there was. It's been a rocky road. There's been some fantastic days. Uh, for example, going to the uh, USSRC, the Rocket Center in Alabama, sitting at the table that uh, Werner von Braun used to have his conferences with. Uh, with astronauts and engineers who worked on the on the Skylab program, that is something I will never forget. That is uh, like a like a dream. Like wow, I blinked and I missed it. Um, the bad things, uh, like once I turned on the computer and it refused to boot up, and half of the hard disk with all the film material had been wiped. <gasps> right. And what's the moral of this story, though, Dwight? The moral of the story up? is and. <laughs> Thankfully, because I, I work in the, in an engineering department, we always have backups. When we do live sport, we have several different uh, signals coming in that we can always go to should one of them fail. And the very first thing I did when we had all this stuff uh, copied or, or filmed was to copy it across to the hard disks. Now, Murphy's Law said that the one hard disk that was going to uh, fail was the one where I didn't back everything up. So I didn't lose anything, but I had to go to these, uh, you know, the memory sticks that you put oh, gosh, the yeah. days to film and recopy it over. I'm like, please have nothing wrong with it because that will be the end of me. Yeah. <laughs> came, came and ever since then, I've had multiple backups everywhere. So if you're going to make a film, my advice, back up, back up, back up. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, no, I know, I know that as well. I mean, not, not having made a, a film as such, but, you know, working in TV, um, being an editor, it was just make sure that we always have backup of the footage that you'd filmed because otherwise, you know, what have you got? You've got nothing, have you, really? Oh, man, uh, seriously. Uh... There are times by by the seat of my pants, you know, we, we uh, managed to interview Paul White's, his very last interview before he passed away. Uh, um, he didn't want to be interviewed. And I just said, Paul, you, 
you have such a story to tell, a legacy. It's important that people hear about this. And he said, okay, is it just a Q&A? And I said, yes. And I said, I, I, uh, I am not some hoax nut. I'm not going to throw some conspiracy theory in your face. And he went, right, you've got 10 minutes. And I'm like, I only need five. <laughs> and you know, he came out of a conference and he said, I'm ready to do the interview now. And, you know, just basically hand holding the camera microphone uh, clip to him. And I only had the time to set up one, one mic. And I remember just thinking, please, please, God, let everything happen uh, like it's supposed to, because this is a one-off chance. And it, it, it worked, but stress, that, that's actually, there's, there's these moments of stress, which, uh, I'll tell you the worst part. This, this is a story that's, that's you've got to hear. We, we were in um, Huntsville. We had the car full of camera gear. We were driving the rental car back to Atlanta where our flight was uh, because we flew into Atlanta and we drove across to Huntsville because it was easier and cheaper than, than taking a plane. And we were driving back and we had our, our little navigation device. And the, the weather was atrocious. The cloud cover was bad. I think it had rained a little bit or, or something like that. And we were supposed to turn right. And we kept driving, driving. I'm, I'm saying to, to Alexandra, you know, at some point we need to turn. Next thing we see, welcome to Tennessee. And we're like, ah. <laughs> so we had to loop around in Tennessee through Chattanooga and come back through the top of Georgia back down to Atlanta. So we've done that. I'm calling up the car rental company going, oh, we're going to be late. We're going to be late. And they're going, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. You've told us we're good. We're good. Your, your plan allows you to be, to be late. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> thankfully. We get about 42 miles out, Alexandra's driving, she's going, oh, the car's pulling really badly as if we've got a flat tire. I'm like, I can't have a flat tire. So we pull into the Circle K, we get out of the car. What do you know? The tire is completely oh, no. down to the metal. Mm. And they didn't have a spare tire. They had this pump thing that these modern cars have. And because we had driven so long, not realizing we had a flat tire, there was no way to salvage this, this uh, wheel. So we, we thankfully, at the airport, when we rented the car, the guy said to us, do you want the complete coverage? Because if anything happens, you just walk away. And we're like, you know what? Sounds like a good idea. So we, we paid for it. And I called up the insurance company at, at the Circle K with the car, you know, with, with just the metal and a bit of uh, rubber on, on what, what the wheel used to be. And they, they, they just look at the, the policy we had and they go, oh, you've got the comprehensive insurance. That's fine. We'll send out a truck. We'll tow you down to the, uh, to, to the airport. Everything's sweet. And we're like, oh, fantastic. Our flight was at 6.20 in the morning. And we got to the hotel at, I think, around 2 in the morning. Oh, wow. Right? That's so cool. <laughs> the, that, was, that was probably the worst part of making the film, that the stress that I actually managed to sleep for the three hours. That, that is uh, something. Yeah, I, do, I get that. Yeah, once in a lifetime. And, you know, it, it's about getting it right. And, you know, you, you obviously have put your life and souls into to basically getting this right. And um, as I said, you know, I, despite all the awards, I think, you know, it, it's incredibly commendable because what you're saying is absolutely true. You I have educated basically um, more audiences across the globe about Skylab, which is really quite an extraordinary story that was kind of a little bit lost, wasn't it, really? Very much so. And uh, 
for example, um, it used to be that documentaries about the space program, you were lucky if you got a 10 second shot of Skylab floating in space and they would say, oh, and after Apollo came Skylab, then we went to the shuttle and then you have the whole four hours worth of uh, discussion about the shuttle. And I thought something's got to change. This can't be, uh, this can't be right. And I have noticed, now I'm not saying it's all my effort. Uh, I've been a part of it, let's, let's say that much. There's a group of people who are very passionate about it. For example, uh, Emily Carney, Brian Fiore, um, a fellow by uh, the name of Johannes up in, uh, in, uh, in Scandinavia. Uh, we've just been bringing it out on Facebook and talking about it and stuff like that. And if you've been watching For All Mankind, which is now running on uh, Apple TV, which is an alternate timeline universe, the first episode of season two featured a fully functional Skylab up in space and they got the technical stuff right. And we were watching it going, wow, someone's done their research. And it's like, I am so happy that they've bothered to take the time to learn about it. whether they watched our film or not. I have no idea, but they have done the research. And that is the change that I really wanted to see. I wanted to see these astronauts who have been forgotten about uh, finally recognized for, for the work they've done. And like when you go to these autograph shows, uh, the guys who walk on the moon have lines of people. You, you wait for a good half an hour to an hour to, to get an autograph from them. Skylab guys, there's maybe one or two people. Now that's changed. Uh, we're riding a wave of this public awareness of Skylab. We had a hand in it, I'm pretty sure, but it's really, uh, for me, it is so satisfying to see audiences go ballistic when they're cheering on the Skylab astronauts. I'm like, yeah, they've deserved every single minute of it. Brilliant. How many, sorry, Dwight, forgive me, but you're, you're going to educate me now. How many astronauts were there on Skylab? There were nine that flew. Pete Conrad, Joe Kerwin, Paul Weitz on SL2, Alan Bean, Owen Garriott, Jack Lausmer on SL3, Jerry Carr, Bill Pogue and Ed Gibson on SL4. We also had Don Lind and Vance Brand who were the Skylab rescue team. They were a, a, a crew of two that would have flown a modified command module up to the space station, which allowed five people to travel in it in an emergency situation and get them from the space station if their vehicle was not able to fly. Uh, there were a lot of astronauts on the backup team um, please don't ask me to rattle them off. I no, I'm not, I'm not. I just, <laughs> no, I, I just think it, it's important to sort of recognise these people who gave their lives, right, basically, because what a lot of people, I mean, as much as this is fascinating and fantastic, it really is. I mean, these astronauts basically put their lives on the line because, you know, I mean, we didn't have the knowledge way back then that we do now. Um, Long-term space flight was an unknown at that point. Whether you could work in space, do repairs in space, that was an unknown. NASA had not really considered the uh, option of having to do major repair work up in space until Skylab came along, where it became thrust in their in their face. They had no, they they had plans for every contingency, but they had not specifically planned. Oh, what happens? What do we do when the micrometeorite shield rips off and we have to go outside and deploy the uh, solar panel? They had not planned that. They had to learn that in the eleven days prior to the first mission flying up. Yeah, so that I mean that is 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 really quite extraordinary thinking about it now because you know 
the, the, the things that we do learn through the International Space Station um, is so much more advanced, isn't it? Because, you know, we, we've, we've learned a lot about our planet, you know, the universe, where we sit in the universe. Now, I've just got this one question to ask you because I, I think, you know, it, it, I've got to ask it anyway, out of interest. So you obviously believe that there is other life force out there. Whether or not they're flying in uh, vehicles right in Earth orbit is another thing, but I am fairly certain in this vast, vast universe, there is other life out there. There has to be. It, when you think of the millions or billions of uh, galaxies in the universe, the to think that we're the only ones, I think that's a little bit short-sighted. Absolutely. So, I mean, in terms of, have you ever put that question? You must have put that question to some of the astronauts that you, you've spoken to and, you know. Do you know? I, I never did. There is a little uh, secret bonus at the end of the film, and this is just an off-the-cuff comment by Joe Kerwin, and it was so hilarious. I, I, I thought we'll, we'll keep it in the film. It's at the very end after the credits. And I asked him if he's okay with me using it. He said, if you think it helps the flow of the story, put it in. So I put it in. It never happened. I'll just put that disclaimer here. But it caught us totally off guard. I thought, oh, we have to. Because it sums up the, the fact that the Skylabbers had a wicked sense of humour, despite being very professional about what they were, were doing. I think there was a, an atmosphere of relaxed attitude uh, during Skylab because they were up there for such a long time. It wasn't the, the you know, 10 day mission to the moon, land, get out. You didn't have time to muck around. You, you had to do the stuff that you were supposed to do. On Skylab, they had the time. So they had this uh, sort of humor about them that you don't see so much in, in the Apollo missions. Um, Joe Kerwin, hilarious. Pete Conrad uh, is, is funny. Uh, all the guys have uh, just the, the funniest, coolest guys to hang around. They are, they are uh, you know, when you, when you sit down and talk with them, this is the thing that gets me. You know? They are super smart. They, they are, you feel so like stupid in front of them. And yet they, they, they will talk to you and they, will, they live normal lives as well. It's not like they're, they're like rock and roll royalty that go here, you must bow before me. They, they're not like that. No. No, no, not, not, not at all. So, yeah, I, I should imagine that all of them were probably up there open to, um, you know, other, other life force across the universe as well. So that, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Um, definitely. So what, one of the questions that I have to ask you before I, I decide to let you go... <laughs> Is, I've got uh, no choice, do I? Oh, no. Um, we're doing quite well. Yeah, absolutely, we are. Um, I, I think it's a fascinating subject. So where would, you know, anybody go and see this film now, this documentary? They can uh, view it. Unfortunately, again, given COVID, there is no chance to see it in the cinema. It's just not going to happen in, in the foreseeable future. Um, which is actually a benefit for us because it, it takes a whole lot of stress out of our planning. We have the film available up on Vimeo uh, as a pay-per-view. Then we also have the Blu-ray, which has been released right now, and that you can order straight from our website, which is www.searchingforskylab.com. 
Brilliant, because, you know, I haven't had the opportunity yet to go and watch it. So I, I was secretly asking for myself as well. <laughs> uh, I said, we'll talk after the cameras go off. And we'll, yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll make sure you get to see it. I'm sorry, I didn't realise you hadn't seen it yet. Oh, uh, that's, I haven't that's actually, I haven't had a chance to see it. Um, I mean, I, I wanted to. I partly, I just haven't really sort of looked into to seeing it <laughs> in the last week, really. Because <laughs> it better be good then, eh? <laughs> yeah, I, I've just been incredibly busy, but you know, it's one of the things that I would love to see because I think it's absolutely fascinating. And you know, um, I think you know, well done, congratulations on the fact that you brought to the forefront something that important in our lives that has basically shaped our future yeah very much so and and this is the thing it's like the unsung hero uh again the, the astronauts who are up there you know asking about how humble they are they're not the ones that go around and, and blow a trumpet from the, the tallest building to say look at what i've done they're very humble about it like Paul White did not want to talk to us not because he's arrogant he's just shy he didn't want to be standing in front of a camera and I had to convince him, no, look, your story is something well worthwhile listening to. And thankfully, uh, when I was talking to him, he could see that I knew the, the subject. So that, that helped as well. You know, if you go there and go, what's it like going to the bathroom in space? They might think, well, this guy is not really serious about making a movie. But I remember asking him specific questions about his mission that, that showed beyond doubt that I knew what I was talking about. And that, that does help. If you find a common ground, with these extraordinary people, you've got half the battle done for you. you, know, you they, they, I'll, I'll tell you this story. When I was talking to Stan Labar, I would ask him a question and he would say, I don't know the, the answer. I would go to bed. I would wake up the next morning and he would have 10 different references of, of people to talk to to answer this question. They love sharing this information that, to, to find people. You should see them when they talk to, to little kids. The, the you know to, to inspire young kids it's fantastic watching watching the, these guys who have been up in space telling a, a, a young child follow your dream do what you want you can achieve anything you want I mean, who better to tell them that than somebody who's been living in space for three months yeah no I, I i can see that 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 that's amazing because you know i mean I, i've got a, my son is 21 now but i mean he grew up with a fascination with nasa and um, at one point, he, I, I think most people, most little boys want to be Buzz Lightyear, don't they? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Buzz, Buzz Aldrin, sorry, not Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> but you um, know what the good thing is? The good thing happening at the moment, well, not at the moment, but it's since the 70s, is that, you know, women, women form an important part of NASA as well. And that's really important for, for, for young girls to see that they can, they can become the best that they can be doing spacecraft engineering or whatever, or astronauts, you know, and it's nice to see that the Lego sets come out with the women of science. It's fantastic. Fantastic. Yes. No, I'm, uh, you're doing well, Dwight, actually, on, on the show. You really are. You're saying all the right things. <laughs> <laughs> I am? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> a bit of uh, male and female equality is concerned. So definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Oh, look, we even synchronized there. Absolutely. So the, I, I, I <laughs> it can only go uphill from here, I'm hoping. Yeah, oh, and yeah. by the way, here's the, here's the, the nice design done by a very good friend of mine, Brian Fiore, who designed the astronaut you're seeing in the back. 
that's become our mission mascot. We call him the EVA man. And uh, another friend, you know, I found out through our common interest in, in Skylab and uh, I found out he was an artist and I said, can you please, please do something for the film? And he did. Just, and he's now part of the team. So these awards here as much of uh, Brian, Emily, um, Herb and Carl's as anybody's. These are the, the core members of the crew. We had a very small team. Um, yeah. to, to prove to you actually in this day and age, you can do a film on a micro thin budget with a small group of people provided they're dedicated enough. Yes, yeah, so I can completely see that, you know, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, on a totally different scale. I mean, I've worked in low budget TV, so I get that, you know, you can produce, you don't need all of those people, do you, as provided your work as a team and that there are no egos and that you know you're you're all on the same page about you know wanting to to push this idea or you know trying to to educate a, a, a wider audience which I think you know is invaluable isn't it you know people should know more about our planet and you know solar system and and all that type of thing because it, it it's invaluable it really is to who we are as human beings isn't it you know yeah, it gives us a sense of purpose and a sense of why are we here uh yeah it's uh, one of my favorite photos of the whole space program is the voyager family snapshot where they turned it around and they photographed the planets and you see earth it's a tiny little speck of dust in a moonbeam uh, a beam of light and uh, you just think that's us. And Carl Sagan put it the best, I'm paraphrasing from him. Every murderer, every lover, every coward, every hero, everything you know is on that speck of dust. And I, I think that's the point where we can get bring this, this to a close. So Dwight, thank you for coming on Tea Time. Can enlightening some of our listeners really so brilliant and well done congratulations on, on the, the making of the documentary and distributing it so brilliant just to add if uh, anybody has any questions we've got an email uh, address on the the searching for skylab website by all means send uh, send the questions i'll do my best to answer them uh, there's a lot of groups on facebook that you can join like space hipsters or skylab 70s and apollo soils uh, enthusiasts uh, where we, we discuss stuff and and you'll be surprised the type of people that show up there to add their two cents it's uh sometimes you get some royalty appearing i can imagine of course you know because it, it it's um a universal interest really is <laughs> It is. It is. Everyone's a closet space nut. That, that's. Uh, yeah, I've worked that they are. I mean, like you, I'm. I'm probably. Um, we're not. We're not of a dissimilar age. I mean, my. Yeah. I, I mean, I grew up with Star Trek and Star Wars, and you know, I just thought that George Lucas is the most fascinating man alive. Really. So. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. So. Anyway, good to talk. Take care. Thanks for great being on the show. Thank you. Look forward to chatting with my next guest on the Tea Time Sofa this time next Saturday. In the meantime, if you would love to get in touch about having a chat with me, you can reach me on Tea Time at forthenow.co.uk where you can find me on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram on Tea Time with AM. Bye for now.